The closing scene of disaster movies like Wally or 2012 or The Day After Tomorrow, I know Wally's actually a romance, but it's also a disaster movie. But the closing scenes for movies like that are often brimming with optimism. Things have gone very badly, but as the runtime draws to an end, triumphant horns start playing in the background. The visuals are spectacular and the survivors emerge from whatever craft or cave they've holed up in into the dawn of a new day. These lucky few have not only made it through the catastrophe, but invariably they've finally learned from all the mistakes of mankind. There will be a lot of work to do, but the outlook is all positive. Now, after, a more, after more than a year aboard, it was time for Noah and his family and the animals to leave their floating home. Coming off the ark, they must have wondered what sort of world would be waiting for them. What comes next? Were they going to be placed into a new Garden of Eden like their ancestors Adam and Eve had been? It wouldn't have been an uh, outlandish thought. What role would sin play in this new world? After all, hadn't God washed all the wickedness away and weren't Noah and his family declared righteous by God? Yes, Noah had approached God as a sinner, bringing a blood sacrifice in his Thanksgiving offering in the last passage, but really only God knew what the new arrangement would be and what the future would hold. And he had indicated that he was going to make some changes to how things were done. In our text tonight, God explains that despite the cleansing effect of the flood, sin would, in fact, continue to spread throughout the earth. Terrible violence would return. And we humans would have the responsibility, among other things, of keeping that violence in check. And so in Genesis chapter 9, we have the foundations of human government established. Before the flood, there was no official governance. Probably things were settled by the father of a family or the patriarch of a family, but there was no foundation of human government. At the same time, as that foundation is being laid, a world of opportunity is presented to the faithful eight, and best of all, God reveals an unlimited and ongoing covenant of his powerful grace made not just to Noah and his family, but to you and I as well. So let's begin in verse one. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. It would have been good enough to just have survived the flood, but God, of course, goes further. He blesses Noah's family. You know, the Christian life, which most of us have signed up to be a part of, it's not just about last minute survival, meaning it's not just about escaping hell and getting into heaven instead. That is, of course, the most eternally significant, but walking with God is a blessed life, according to the scriptures. We see it in Genesis. We see it in the law of Moses. We see it in the Psalms. We see it in the Proverbs. We see it in the Beatitudes of Jesus. We see it in the epistles. We see it in the Revelation. God's power and his purposes and his prescriptions are for every aspect of your life so that you might be full of what he calls blessing, a blessed life. Now, the, the blessing that God talks about is not the same thing as the material abundance that is so often pursued in this world and sadly by certain branches of Christianity that is trying to marry the idea of spiritual blessing with material wealth. That's not what the Bible is talking about. 
Jesus explains to us what blessing is and what it means specifically in his Sermon on the Mount. It means that we will receive the kingdom and we will inherit the earth. It means we will receive comfort and we will see God. It means we will be filled and shown mercy. Compile the reference in scripture about the blessed believer and you find that God wants these spiritual blessings to permeate your heart, your mind, your relationships, your family, your endeavors, all that you do and that it's designed to do so even when life is hard and resources are few and bodies are sick or enemies surround you. God's blessing is always available to those who follow after him. Now, the Lord repeats the directives that he gave to Adam and Eve to Noah and his family. He says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now, for these four couples, really for the three couples, because Noah and his wife they're about wrapping things up. But for these couples, this would have been an awesome responsibility. I mean that in the sense of weight and the sense of seriousness and in the sense of a lot is put on their shoulders. A lot was riding on their ability to obey. But as usual, God's commands reveal some things about him. First, that he would, of course, have to be involved in continually protecting and sustaining humanity so that the earth could be repopulated. And second, we find once again that he loves for his people to be a fruitful people. And he loves for his people to make a godly mark on the earth. Uh, that's, that's his desire all the time. That's what he wanted Adam and Eve to do. That's what he wants them to do here. That's what he wanted Israel to do. And that's still his desire, by the way, for you and I, that we be fruitful and fill the earth with spiritual children and physical children by being a part of this huge discipling project that he has given to us in the church age. What did he say? Go into all the world and make disciples, right? And just as a quick aside here, I think as we go through Genesis, we can get hints of of at least God's mentality and his heart for what we might have going on in heaven. We're not just gonna be sitting in clouds and staring and doing nothing. We don't have a lot of detail given to us about what we'll be doing in heaven. We have certain things that are given to us, certain things that we um, infer based upon different passages and things that we read in books like the Revelation. But sometimes you think, well, what are we going to do up there all the time? We're just going to sit around? No. What is God? God always has his people busy doing things and building things and bearing fruit and being full of his goodness and making a mark on the, the world that he's given them. If we think about the garden, if we think about Noah's family, if we think about the church, if we think about the nation of Israel, does God ever say to any of those groups, just sit around and do nothing? He never says that. He says, I want your life to be full of worship and full of activity and full of building projects and full of really cool stuff. And so I think we're gonna be a lot busier in heaven than perhaps we might think at this point. And so it's still his desire that we be busy making our mark for him on the earth. Though the directive was very similar to what Adam and Eve had received, this time around, there were a few caveats. Look at verse two. The fear and terror of you will be in every living creature on the earth, every bird of the sky, every creature that crawls on the ground, and all the fish of the sea. They are placed under your authority. Some comp commentators 
believe that before the flood, humans perhaps had a much more direct ability to rule and, and, and govern the animals based on how God spoke to Adam and what we're seeing here in comparison. But now God is signaling that some things have changed, particularly the relationship between human beings and the animal kingdom. Because of sin, this world that they were going to repopulate was going to be full of fear and contention and conflict and death. Animals would now fear men. And scientists still today point out that even apex predators with all their immense strength and ferocity, they fear man, even when man is not being necessarily hostile or threatening towards them. Uh, there's still this baseline fear of human beings. And verse three gives us at least one reason why. Verse three, every creature that lives and moves will be food for you. As I gave the green plants, I have given you everything. So for over a thousand years of human history, men had been vegetarians, or at least the godly people had been. Now there was nothing off the table, proverbial or literal table. They could eat any animal that they wanted to. In fact, God's telling them that eating meat was going to be a necessary part of their food pyramid. Now remember, the original audience of Genesis was who? The children of Israel. They were the first people to read this book. Moses is writing these things down and compiling these things, and he's going to deliver them to the children of Israel first before we get it, right? So they're the original audience. And after reading Genesis, what are they going to read? They're going to read the rest of Moses's books of the law given to him by God on Mount Sinai. And in that law, it was going to demand of them quite a few very strict dietary boundaries, lots of dietary restrictions, lots of animals they couldn't eat. One might think, wait a minute, if Noah could eat any animal, what gives? Why can't I eat any animal? Because God is saying here, you can eat any animal, any animal that lives, go to town, just eat that thing up. And yet the original audience is going to be told, you can eat practically nothing. You, you can eat, you know, you can eat this, but not that, that, but not this. There's a personal application for us here, but first we need to realize something that the Bible reveals to us, and that's that God dealt with different people in different ways at different times. The book of Hebrews opens with this very thing, the way that God reveals himself and spoke to people. We call these periods, these different ways of God dealing with people, we call them dispensations. And, and so we would be identified here as dispensationalists, okay? So if anybody ever, uh, ever says that, that's what it means. It just simply means that God deals with his people and deals with the people of the earth in different ways at different times. It doesn't mean people are saved in different ways. We're saved the same way that Abraham was saved, right? By believing God and God accounts it to us as righteousness. But as far as the interaction between God and man and what he requires of people in, in, in their relationship with him, those things were different from time to time. And we can, of course, prove it. That's why you're not only allowed to eat shellfish today, because you are, uh, even though the Jews would not be, but more importantly, it's why you didn't have to bring a lamb to church this evening for us to ritually sacrifice. Right, we, we joke about that, but if we were in the temple period, you all would have brought a lamb to church tonight. And I'd be like slicing throats and it'd be really gross and awful. Right? I don't want to kill these poor little lammies, right? But God was doing a different thing at that time. 
He, did, he worked with Adam and Eve in a certain way. Sin came into the world, and now he's gonna work with Noah and those after him in a certain way. He's gonna get to the law, and he's gonna work with his people in a different way. Little things, big things, right? We see here, Noah, he says, you can eat any animal. You're gonna get to Moses, and he's gonna say, no, you can't eat any animal. And it's not because God is changing, but it's because he is doing different things according to his providence and according to the working of his plan of redemption. Now, there is a personal application for us here. Sometimes God may ask us to submit to a certain restriction for a period of time in our walk with him. Maybe it has to do with your personal liberties as a Christian. Maybe it has to do with some dream that you have for your life about what you want to happen in your future. There are gonna be times where God says, hey, I have imposed restrictions on you because I know that this is what's best or this is what I desire for you and the testimony I'm building in your life. Great. And then sometimes God does not impose those same restrictions on you in a different part of your life. Here's a biblical example. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus brings his disciples in and he says, I want you to go out and preach to the towns around us. But here's the deal. You don't get to bring anything. You don't get to bring a traveling bag. You don't get to bring money in your belts. You don't get to bring an extra shirt. You don't bring anything. Okay, we'll go. And then you get to the end of the book of Matthew and he gathers his disciples again. And what does he say? Just go into all the world to make disciples. And there are no restrictions given. It wasn't that Peter wasn't allowed to keep money with him when he came to the guy uh, at, the, at the temple gate called Beautiful where he says, yeah, silver and gold I don't have. It wasn't that Jesus said he can't have any money. He's just like, I'm poor, I don't have any money. But at the end of Matthew in chapter 28, there are no restrictions, which we see in chapter 10. And so what we find is that it is our duty as children of God and servants in his household to seek God's will for us right now. What is the master's directive for me today? Tomorrow, things might be different, but what is the master's directive for me today? What am I being asked to do? Am I being asked to lay aside a liberty? Am I being asked to submit to some some restriction that perhaps will only be for a time or will be for an extended period of time? But our master has a intention for us and he has directives for us and he has a plan for us. And we're not to take the reins of our walk with the Lord or the reins of of the yoke that he puts on us and try to go our own way, but to just submit to the row that he wants us to plow in at the time. Verse four says this, however, you must not eat meat with its lifeblood in it. Blood in meat is a significant biblical issue. It keeps popping up. It appears here and under the law. It appears in the time of, king, of the kings. There's a, some problems there with it. It appears again in the book of Acts, big divisive part of the relationship between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians there in the book of Acts. They had to have a whole big meeting about it. A careful reader of scripture will have to, at some point, ask themselves, okay, is it okay for me to eat a piece of meat cooked rare, right? Is it okay for you to slap a steak on your plate and a bunch of red stuff's coming out? because this keeps coming up. And what about the Jerusalem council? Well, let's talk about that for just a minute. First of all, that red liquid coming out of your steak isn't blood. It's just not. It's called myoglobin. All the meat that we eat, it's been drained of its blood. And you can look this up in lots and lots of different places. It's not blood, it's myoglobin. Uh, And what about that perfect slice of sushi though? I've discovered in the last couple of years, sushi, it's not bad. Give it a try. Listen, some of you know who, some of you know me, and some of you don't. And all I'm saying is, if I'm saying that sushi is good, probably every single person in this room would like it because I don't like anything. 
And so, but what about sushi, a raw piece of fish? Am I allowed to eat that? You know what's interesting? I, I, I found this remarkable. I, I was so surprised to learn that raw fish has long been considered kosher even by the rabbis of Israel in their writings and their teachings, as long as the fish itself was on the approved list. It had to have scales and fins and things like that. But uh, so sushi is good to go too. But more importantly, we don't, we don't make our spiritual decisions based upon myoglobin or rabbinical teachings. What does the Bible say? The New Testament clearly explains that nothing that goes into your mouth can defile you when it comes to your diet. Jesus said so. And Paul reiterated multiple times that nothing is unclean to eat in and of itself, okay? But now, let's set that aside for a minute. So eat eat a rare steak if you want, that's fine. But let's look at this another way. Given the strong prohibitions on the eating of blood throughout the Old Testament, and given how seriously God's people took those prohibitions, particularly the Jews, throughout the time from the law, well, from Noah forward all the way through into the time of the Acts and the time of the church, given how serious of an issue this was, Imagine how startling and controversial it really would have been to hear Jesus Christ say, the one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. That's weird. It would, be, it would have been a shocking thing to hear if you were a devout Jew, a Jew who cared about the word of God. You would have said, what is going on here? This is This is running contrary to what I was understanding about the law and rules and regulations. And of course, Jesus said, hey, I came to fulfill the law. And this isn't about just doing a list of do's and don'ts and that's how you're good. This is about a heart connection to God. This is about a heart submission to God and receiving the life that God wants to give you. And so what we find through Jesus' statement there is that you and I as believers are called into a living communion with God, our creator, not some ritualistic arrangement that's been drained of all the lifeblood. Uh, some, some you know, drained piece of meat that's been in the freezer for a while and you cut it up and you cook it up and you call that a relationship with the Lord. No, we are to consume ourselves with the living Jesus Christ, making his life our life, his mind our mind, his heart our heart, with his blood washing all of us head to toe, inside it out, bearing away our sin and then going on day by day, feeding on him for life. It's a graphic image because it's supposed to be, because we're supposed to see just the the visceral intimacy that God wants to have with us, a living relationship, not a sterile one, not a ritualistic one, not a legalistic one, uh, but a, a very close one. Verse five, and I will require a penalty for your lifeblood. I will require it from any animal and from any human. If someone murders a fellow human, I will require that person's life. Whoever sheds human blood by humans, his blood will be shed for God made humans in his image. God keeps track of every single human life, every single one, not just the important people, all the people from all of human history, God keeps track. In fact, the Bible tells us that God keeps track of every living thing, even the life and death of sparrows Jesus talked about uh, in Matthew chapter 10. But to God, human life is so much more important, so much more significant, so much more set apart that it, above all other creatures, must be preserved and protected and paid back life for life in the case of murder. 
Now, capital punishment is a sensitive and controversial issue. Most Americans polled now oppose the death penalty. Among Christians, there seems to be a growing hostility towards it. In December of 2020, Relevant Magazine published an article titled, All Christians Should Oppose the Death Penalty. And so it's something that comes up. Maybe you've talked about this over the Thanksgiving table. Maybe you've had you know, a Facebook back and forth with a, a family member or something about it. Now listen, I'm not trying to make light of, of, of this issue. The application of the death penalty and, and how we do it as a society and where we aren't so good about applying it and where we are better at applying it, that's a very complicated issue worth, worthy of a lot of discussion, okay? So the application of how, let's call it America, how America does the death penalty, complicated, it's worthy of discussion, that's fine, right? But at the level of principle, the principle of capital punishment is a God-given, God-sanctioned thing. We see it here. We see it under the law expanded. And listen, people say, okay, but yeah, we did away with all of that. We did away with all of that when Jesus came and fulfilled the law. Except for that, this principle is continued in the New Testament through the teaching of the apostles. Not only did Paul talk in detail about this in the book of Romans and about how even wicked governments are right to wield the sword in bringing justice, capital justice, onto murderers. But this was interesting. This was pointed out in a couple of the commentaries. Paul the apostle supported capital punishment to the level that when it came to his own personal criminal case, he said before the judge, if I have done anything worthy of death, go ahead and execute me. That's how much he supported capital punishment, right? He didn't say, hey, it's wrong for you to execute me if I've done anything worthy of death. He says, hey, I'm on board with this. But his point was, I haven't done anything worthy of death, and so you shouldn't kill me. Now, God hates murder, and he's very serious about it. And a government executing a murderer is not the same as a person murdering another person. It just isn't. Sometimes those who are, are uh, principally opposed to capital punishment will say, it says, hey, thou shalt not kill. God's not talking about governments dealing with murderers. In that very same law, he's gonna go on and say, but yeah, thou shalt not kill. By the way, if you kill, if you kidnap, if you do this, if you do that, if you profane the Sabbath, you're going to be executed. So obviously, it's not saying that in no case can human beings take the life of another human being. In fact, much the opposite. Now, God does not condone vigilantism. He never has, and he doesn't. Now, it's also not that he never allows mercy for murderers who have repented. He did in many cases. Paul himself had been a murderer. God showed him mercy. Moses, the author of this book, has, was a murderer. He was shown mercy. David, the man after God's own heart, was a murderer. He was shown mercy. But on the principal level, at the societal level, God requires that we value human life so much that if a person purposefully takes a life, everything stops for a moment, everybody stops, and that justice must be served. 
their life must be taken as the required payment, a life for a life. It doesn't matter who the killer is, whether they're rich or powerful or poor or unimportant or stranger or brother, all were to be held to this standard because every single life is of infinite value to God. And so the same is not true for animals, right? Because God had just said to Noah, listen, you're gonna start killing animals and you're gonna eat them up. No death penalty for the barbecue that you're having later, right? But he says, but if a man kills a man or if an animal kills a man, everything stops and justice needs to be served. And it needs to be done not in a haphazard way or not in the way that Lamech talked about a few chapters ago. If somebody does this, I'll kill whoever I want. You know, that's not what God is talking about. Now, sadly, in today's world, we have cheapened human life so much that we find our culture arguing over whether animals and humans are of equal worth or if animals are worth more than humans in some cases. Remember Harambe back in 2016? Who remembers Harambe? Okay, those of you who had Facebook back in 2016 know who Harambe is. But so in 2016, a little three-year-old toddler fell into an exhibit at the Cincinnati Zoo, the gorilla exhibit, okay? And the zoo officials gave the gorilla signal, I don't know, to come back into their enclosures. The two lady gorillas went back in immediately, but not Harambe. Harambe was this big, enormous silverback gorilla. He picked the boy up, started dragging him all around. He was banging his head and and messing the poor little one up. After about 10 minutes, as the situation escalated, zoo officials made the decision to shoot Harambe and the child was saved, injured, but saved. And wasn't uh, wasn't killed and wasn't, uh, his injuries weren't life-threatening. But then what happened? The outcry came. Uh, just, Just everybody was tearing their clothes over the fact that Harambe had been killed for this little boy. Petitions were started to have the parents of the child charged for Harambe's death. A Facebook page called Justice for Harambe quickly gathered 150,000 members. And one of those members wrote this, shooting an endangered animal is worse than murder. And they were serious. And a lot of people agree with that sentiment. Biblically speaking, human life, any human life is unlike any other life on the planet. It is so valuable that God himself left heaven, put on flesh and died for us so that we could have the opportunity to be saved. And when a society wantonly allows guilty, unrepentant killers to live, it is a wicked rebellion against God and an abhorrent insult to his justice. And God is keeping track and he requires payment. Not just here, he says, vengeance is mine and I will repay. And when even his nation, Israel, in the time of the prophets was full of injustice and bloodshed, he said, oh, I am keeping track. I am keeping track and I do not let this slide because human beings are too valuable to me. Now, in the argument between Christians, eventually, if you are someone on, on, who, who supports the idea of properly administered capital punishment, someone's gonna say, well, then you're not pro-life. You, if you're pro-life, you have to be pro-life and against death in any way from womb to tomb is the idea. And that's just simply not a biblical idea. It's not. We can argue, if you want, about 
the failures of our specific justice system in the application of capital punishment. That's a different issue. But on the philosophical, theological, biblical, societal level, God says, if you take a life, then you should pay for that life with your own life. And that the human society around you, administered by the government, should be the ones to execute that judgment on you. And that it is a obligation, it is a responsibility that God has given man. God could just say, I'll do the Greek mythology thing and I will just lightning bolt everybody who murders somebody, but he doesn't. He says, no, I have given you human beings this responsibility to govern yourselves in such a way and to organize yourselves in such a way that you obey what I have said and that you set up governments who will go my way even when it is unpopular or unpleasant. Now, having heard God say these things, I suppose Noah might have said, but Lord, we're not going to kill anyone. We're not gonna do that. Maybe not, but God was explaining to them that humans are natural born killers. Therefore, we need some level of government to keep our violent hatred in check. We may not like government. We may want a small government, but human beings need government. There's lots and lots of bad governments throughout human history. Most of them have been bad because most of them have been dominated by God-hating, wicked men. But human beings need government. Verse seven, but you be fruitful and multiply, spread out over the earth and multiply on it. The context is that the world would soon be full of death, bloodshed, murder, savagery. But God's people did not need to cower or hide away or shrink down or be frightened of what lay ahead. They were set apart by God to live a life full of his grace and full of his power and full of his blessing. Sometimes people ask whether Christians should even bother bringing children into such a terrible world. And listen, the world has always been terrible. Uh, God keeps us here, his church, he keeps us here for now to be salt and light. Christian author and musician Andrew Peterson has uh, just a great book title called Adorning the Dark. I love that. What a great phrase. We're the light of this dark world. We're the ones with real life. We're the ones with real hope. Does God want you specifically to have kids? That's between you and him, right? But does God want his people generally to continue to be fruitful and raise families? Absolutely. He wants us to make this world salty. He wants us to be salty, help our kids to be salty, and to, and to bear fruit in that way. Verse eight, and God said to Noah and his sons with him, understand that I am establishing my covenant with you and your descendants after you and with every living creature that is with you, birds and livestock and all wildlife of the earth that are with you, all the animals of the earth that came out of the ark where I read understand in verse nine, your version may have behold, God's calling our attention. He wants to grab our eyes and our ears and have us look at this. He wants to be known. He wants his word to be understood. He's gonna use this term covenant seven times in the next 10 verses. And he calls it my covenant. It was his idea. It wasn't developed as a response to some complaint from mankind. It was born out of his grace and his compassion and his love for us. 
Apparently, I saw a headline that right now the International Alliance of Theatrical Stage Employees is preparing to go on strike and shut down Hollywood productions uh, because of long hours and low pay. So you're going to have to wait for the season three of Mandalorian an extra long amount of time. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. But so they're about to go on strike, and it's going to shut down all these productions. And uh, they're, they're hoping to force the powers that be at companies like Disney and Netflix and Amazon to comply with their wishes. And there will have to be talks and negotiations and compromises, and ultimately it will lead to a new contract that both parties are unsatisfied with. Now listen, that's not what God's covenants with mankind are like. It's his idea. He showed up to this meeting with this covenant. What was the covenant? Verse 11, I establish my covenant with you that never again will every creature be wiped out by floodwaters. There will never again be a flood to destroy the earth. Praise the Lord. God looked through history. He knew what was going to happen. And yet here's what he said. You guys, things are going to get really bad. They're going to get really bad. Even though sin is going to spread and violence is going to once again saturate the earth, humanity is going to, going to unify in rebellion against me at the Tower of Babel. Even the Nephilim are going to return. Despite all of that, even still, I will not again destroy the world with a flood. This is, by the way, another nail in the coffin of the theory that the flood was local rather than global. If the flood was local, then God is a liar. Then he has not kept his promise here. There have been many deadly floods throughout history. And of course, in 2004, the Boxing Day tsunami killed over 200,000 people across thousands of miles and over a dozen countries in just a few hours. And so no, the global the flood was global in the book of Genesis. Verse 12, and God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I am making between me and you and every living creature with you, a covenant for all future generations. I have placed my bow in the clouds and it will be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I form clouds over the earth and the bow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all the living creatures. Water will never again become a flood to destroy every creature. The bow will be in the clouds and I will look on it and remember the permanent covenant between God and all the living creatures on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and every creature on the earth. The symbol of the rainbow has, of course, been hijacked in our culture. It means something very different than it does here on the pages of scripture. But let's set that aside and look at what we see here. What an incredible tender thing God did in giving us this sign of his promise. Think about it for a minute. In any rain cloud, on any day, in any place on the earth, any person can look up and see a visual representation of the mercy of God, a visual, real, tangible representation that says God is merciful and God knows what's going on on the earth and God is looking down from heaven and the rainbow that I see is the rainbow that he sees and he remembers and he has promised. He has, has wanted so badly to get this message of his mercy and peace out that he has hard-coded it into creation. You're gonna be able to go out tomorrow morning if you want, turn on your hose, spray it around and make a rainbow yourself. It's hard-coded into creation because God wanted there to be a constant visible reminder of his mercy. 
God has filled the earth with the proclamation of his grace. And here he reminds us that he is not only a promise maker, he is a promise keeper. That's the important thing. That and the fact that he has the power to keep his promises. He has so much power that he can make a rainbow appear anywhere around the earth for you to see and for others to see as well. Notice too where he says, whenever I form clouds over the earth. It's an incredible image. Do we realize just how, God, how involved God is in our lives and in this world? Jesus said a sparrow doesn't fall to earth without God's consent. That's a remarkable thing. He forms clouds in the Hanford sky. He measures the shores and gives boundaries to the ocean waves. He knit you together by hand in your mother's womb. He numbers your hairs. He has written your days in his book. He bottles your tears. He whispers to your heart, follow me. Receive my mercy. Discover new life in Christ so that you can be full of fruit and so that you can thrive even in a dark world. He values you so much. Your life is precious beyond compare to him. This God wants to walk with you through life. Rather, he wants you to walk with him. He's invited you to follow him. He wants you to know his word and to know his heart and understand these things. He wants to bless you with every spiritual blessing lavished on those who put their hope in him, sent into the world to be salt and light until we're brought to our forever home with him face to face in heaven. That's our God. That's what he wants to do. That's what he's still doing in our lives today.